Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this commandment of, of to love God. Um, we've uh, first began with um, Deuteronomy and looking at what we call the Shema, um, and to love God with our entire selves. And then last week, we looked at Paul's uh, writings on this commandment, on this law of what it means to love God. And, and Paul then takes on what Jesus says, to love God and to love neighbor. To love neighbor is to love God. To love God is to love neighbor. And today we go to the Gospels, according to Luke. And we look at Luke 10, verses um, 25 through 37. As a lawyer, someone who is um, an expert in law, questions and asks, um, what does it mean uh, to love God? And to love neighbor. I invite you now to listen to the word of our Lord. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, with what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to vindicate himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and took him off. Leaving him half dead, now by chance, a priest was going down the road. And we saw him. He passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came upon him. And when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, treating him with oil and wine. Then he put on his own animal, then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Tony Morrison once said, Seeing is bonding. About five years ago, a man named Winston Mosley died in prison. You may know this name, Winston Mosley. Winston Mosley was in prison for raping and killing Kitty Genovese. What made this, fam this killing famous was not the, the brutality of the killing, but the number of onlookers who did nothing to stop it. It is reported that 38 onlookers saw the incident taking place as Mosley brutally took advantage of this woman, eventually leaving her for dead. Genevieve died without one person running to her rescue without one person calling the police, without one person taking action to save her. When the police asked why no one helped, 
the overwhelming answer, I did not think it was my responsibility to get involved. The case became national news. It was studied in psychology classes for years, trying to understand the onlookers' way of looking for this loophole, if you would, with lack of responsibility. The only problem with this report is that it's not true. Yes, Mosley uh, did these horrid things. And Genevieve lost her life in a way that no one should ever lose their life. But nearly 50 years after this report was written, it was discovered that there were no 38 onlookers. The reporter had just made this part up. The question for us today here in America is, why was it so easy for us to believe it? I don't know. My guess is because we have all been one of those 38 onlookers ourselves. Maybe not to this extreme, but we've all seen that man holding up a sign on the side of the road. That teenager aspiring out of control. Or that woman who comes to work with just one too many bruises. Or the boss who keeps saying those inappropriate jokes. Or the friend that is cheating on the exam. Or the life of privilege that some have when the system takes advantage of others. We know what is right. But we debate. Should I take responsibility and get involved. The truth of the matter is, simply knowing in our minds what the right thing to do is does not mean that we always do the right thing. And this is what the lawyer knew when he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Notice the commentary in the scripture in verse 29. It says, wanting to vindicate himself, or modern translation, looking for a loophole, the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? This prompts Jesus to tell the perhaps one of, if not the most famous parables of all. He does so by introducing two Jewish characters, a priest and a Levite. And he's telling this story to a Jewish audience. And so it's safe to assume that the person on the left on the side of the road is also Jewish, and as well as the robbers are Jewish in this story. The only person in this parable that is not Jewish, including Jesus, is a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans have a bitter history on both racial and religious hatred towards the other. They have nothing to do with one another, and Jews and Samaritans, they're enemies. So it makes sense if we hear this parable that we begin to, to make loopholes for the priest and the Levite into why they did not go and save this man. When this person, despised by the audience listening to this parable, is the one that is there for him. After all, the priest, the Levite, they're the ones who shared history with the guy on the side of the road. They're the ones that share a religion with him, a similar background the same nationality, and possibly the same social and economic circles. Uh, 
So why didn't they stop? Well, maybe. Just maybe they were busy. On the way to a meeting, we say. Maybe they didn't really see the man. They just sort of crossed over on the side of the road. We weren't too sure what it was over there, we say. Maybe they knew the laws. They knew if they had touched the body of this man because he was bleeding, then they would have to spend seven days in quarantine. And let's face it, none of us want to spend another day in quarantine. Most likely, though, the reason they didn't stop was because they were afraid. And the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a dangerous road. It was 17 miles long, and during that stretch, drops 3,600 feet. It's a steep, winding, descending, remote road, and at the time was a place of robberies and beatings and sufferings. Being familiar with this journey, most first century Jews could and would sympathize with the priest and the Levite. What if the man in the ditch was faking it? What if the robbers were still lurking around? What if? in a country that spends over $20 billion a year on home securities, I think we all can understand with grace if these two men just wanted to arrive home safely. This is why I believe we never doubted the Genovese report on those non-acting 38 onlookers. And while the Good Samaritan story is more than just go and do likewise, if it was that simple, Jesus would have have put all the put, would have never put all those various characters into the story. He would have given us just a, a straightforward lesson, simple lesson, something like um, there's a man in trouble on the side of the road, and there are three people that passed him by. All three could have, have helped him, but the first two persons did nothing. The third one did. Now go and be like that third person. But as Tom Long says, this is not a simple moral story. This is a parable. And parables always have something shocking, surprising, unexpected, something to wrestle with, something to puzzle over. And in this story, it is the unwanted, rejected Samaritan. is the one who shows mercy to his enemies. This is the one who throws the wrench into the story. This is why this, more, this story is more than a moral story of go and do like the Samaritan. Because the truth of the matter is, we can't. We are incapable of being like the Samaritan. Remember, remember, Jesus is telling this story to an audience of Jewish people. In this context, the Samaritan would have been the person who was despised, hated, ostracized by everyone listening to the story. Therefore, before we assume the figure of the Samaritan and the story is an image of ourselves, well, that we can somehow be just like that Samaritan, we have to pause and ask whether our experience in life has ever continuously been in the experience of being despised, hated, and ostracized. If not, we have to begin to wonder, are we the Samaritan in the story? 
The other reason we probably can't be the Samaritan is that we take for granted that he has all the necessary resources at his fingertips to save that person on the side of the road. So unless we are persons of great means and have all the medicine and all the first aid and can find shelter, unless we're willing to and be able to financially pay for everything to get this man back up and running, we may not be able to be the Samaritan. There's one more reason that we're probably not the Samaritan in this story. If we're the Samaritan, that easily makes us the agents of other people's salvation. And to think like that, Samuel, as I said, is to affirm our large egos that we are a natural answer to other people's problems. Which brings us to the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that we, when we are down, God lifts us up. Through Jesus, God brings us home. Jesus forgives us, heals us, restores us, reconciles with us. Jesus is the one who gives us life. So if the Samaritan is the one that is continually being despised, ostracized, and hated, has everything at their fingertips, and is able to forgive, restore, and reconcile, then the Samaritan sounds a lot like Jesus. Jesus is a Samaritan. And if Jesus is a Samaritan, and we're not the priest and the Levite, and the heart of the gospel says that Jesus saves us when we have been down and out. That leaves us as a person on the side of the road. This means we are the one in the ditch. But the parable of the Good Samaritan does reminds us that we are the needy ones. We're the ones longing for relationships. We're the ones longing for forgiveness. We're the ones longing for reconciliation. The ones longing for a Savior. The ones longing for eternal life. We are the ones who long for the priest and the Levite to stop and to help us. But Jesus says they are incapable of saving us. And that's no fault of their own. Because they are our loopholes. These are the people from our social class. In our well-crafted circle with similar backgrounds and likes and needs. These are the people who give us a sense of security and tell us exactly what we want to hear. But the story that we're hearing, this story, this parable, is telling us, Jesus is telling us that they can't give us what we desperately need. The good news is the person that can give us what we need is walking down the street toward us. He comes to us in those most desperate needs. And he puts his hand down to lift us up. As we look down into his face, we're surprised. Surprised because instead of looking up as someone who looks just like us. He looks like the Samaritan. 
the Samaritan in our life. Can we do it? The question of the parable is, can we do it? While lying there on the side of the road, can we see the face of God? Even when those who think differently than us on gun rights or abortion or the events that happened on January 6th or climate control or border crossings or policy or policing in America or race relations or anything else that has separated us in our country today. Can we imagine the person we most despise being our salvation? For seeing equals bonding. It is in that moment when we can see God's face there that our conversion begins. Not that we see our need of Jesus, but that we're willing to embrace him in the form in which he comes to us in. We are prepared to receive the healing and the forgiveness and eternal life that comes to the person we couldn't believe had anything or wanted anything to do with us. Seeing equals bonding. And bonding equals mercy. Then and only then, when we can see Jesus in that person, can we hear Jesus' words, go and do likewise. And as we are changed, as we feel God lifting us up from that ditch that we lay in, and we can bring, begin to see God there, This is when our conversion begins to go deeper. Our heart now begins to turn. Go, we hear. Go, continue to see the face of Jesus in the despised and the rejected of this world. You can do it, Jesus says, because you are not the Savior. You are not the answer to their prayers. We go because we are searching actually for our own salvation that they can only bring to us. So don't, when we go, don't assume that we can see Jesus, they'll be able to see Jesus' face in you. Don't assume that they'll see you and see Jesus' face. No, just go, go, Jesus says, and expect to see Jesus' face in them. For seeing equals bonding. Bonding equals mercy. And mercy equals responsibility. as we go know that we will meet the weak we will meet the disadvantaged we'll meet the oppressed but we go not out of our own sense of guilt or our own even our own obligation or our own pity we don't even go out of charity but we go with gratitude and from there with joy and from there, delight that God has even come to us. Even when we didn't think we were worthy. When we thought everyone would pass us by, 
God came to us. And now we spend our life seeing the face of Christ in every corner that we turn. Seeing equals bonding. Bonding equals mercy. Mercy equals responsibility. And responsibility equals life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.